Chapel Street Church, you know, it's no secret that the war in Ukraine is a terrible tragedy. We should all be on our knees, praying for an end to the violence and the hostilities in that region. As a church family, a couple of years ago, we helped to build Stephen's Home, a ministry to men with uh, disabilities that are, that are desperately in need of care. Elise West and her team have done a remarkable job of building that ministry. But that home is in Kherson, a city that's been embattled uh, under the Russian invasion. And those men and the workers have had to flee. They're currently in Odessa, hoping to relocate to Romania until the war is over. So we just ask you to continue to pray for provision, protection, and end to the war, and that the home would stay standing so they could return one day and continue the, the important work they started there. Many of you have asked how you can support relief for refugees in Ukraine. Well, we're pleased to tell you that Matt and Sarah Titus are Serve the World missionaries in the Czech Republic, and they are right now receiving and preparing to receive more refugees from Ukraine coming through Poland into the Czech Republic. And they've sent us a message specifically outlining how we can help them with the great work that God is doing. Hey, Chapel Street. Just want to say hi from the Czech Republic. Um, and in my garage right now, you can see it's become a bit of uh, like a warehouse hub these days. Uh, I want to say thanks so much to everybody who's been giving, helping make some of this refugee relief uh, possible. We're going to stay active at it for as long as we can. We've been helping to get apartments ready for more long-term living for people, kind of midterm, more long-term sort of. We've been delivering supplies to locations that can get it across the border to the Ukraine, so actually into the country. And then we've also been helping delivering supplies at big refugee centers where people are coming in, they're only staying for like a few days before they find more permanent housing, like the apartments that we've been finding and re remodeling and doing reconstruction and outfitting for. So it's been crazy busy. It's been an amazing opportunity to be involved in all of it. We're so thankful that we're here in the midst of so much tragedy and that we're able to help and that we're able to do it in, in the name of Jesus and as a church. I think it's such a powerful witness um, that we can actually be the hands of feet and feet of Christ in the midst of such, such a terrible thing. So thank you again so much for everything and for your continued support. Like I said, uh, it's kept us going, it's motivated us, it's literally given us the funds to do all of this relief work. And as long as that's still there, we're gonna keep at it. We're gonna keep pushing at it as best we can. So thanks so much, love you guys. So we want you to know that any gift you give to serve the world in this season will help missionaries like Matt and Sarah Titus for the important work they're doing to help these people who are displaced, who are looking for not only material provision, but for hope, and we can give them the hope of the gospel. That is a pretty cool intro to a salmon, right? I'm pretty impressed with that. I could not do that. I couldn't create those videos, so I'm glad that we've got people who do. Uh, well, I want to start with this question for you guys. What is the most shocking statement 
that you have ever had in your life. And I, I realize I've got to qualify what shocking means, so I'm going to give you some examples. A statement like, Reese's peanut butter crups are a crime against all candy everywhere. That's a shocking statement. I know Americans disagree with me, but you're wrong. They are disgusting and should be removed from all shelves. Um, maybe, maybe you need some more help on what a shocking statement is. Uh, a Democrat and Republican have a civil exchange with each other about the state of this country. That would be pretty shocking if you read that as a headline, right? It could be more personal. It could be like uh, when I heard from my wife, yes, I will marry you. That was shocking. Didn't expect that. Uh, or when my wife said to me, you can go ahead and buy that replica lightsaber that's overpriced from Amazon. Uh, maybe it's a little bit more serious. Maybe it's like church is going remote for the next three weeks. Ended up being almost nine months. Or if you were living in 1963, a headline in a newspaper that said the president has been shot in Dallas. Maybe if we were in 2001 reading a headline that said a plane has hit the Twin Towers. Or even more uh, modern for us, Russia has invaded Ukraine. So many shocking statements out there. But you know what I think is the most shocking statement I've ever had in my life? There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I hope that that shocks you as much as it shocks me. Those are words that I've needed to remind myself of these past couple of months, that there is no condemnation. If you have been a part of our church family for a while, you know that this is the first time I'm preaching in a little bit, because about two months ago, uh, I let a lot of things get ahead of me, and I put myself, myself and my family in a very painful season. I let myself get into a position where I was not loving and serving them well. I wasn't caring for them. I wasn't caring for myself for a whole host of reasons, none of which are excusable. I had let frustration and anxiety and pressure build up around me. And it hurt my very best friend, and it hurt a lot of people that I love. But praise God for pastors, and especially a church family like you guys, that knows how to love people when they are at their worst. Thank you for doing that. In the months since... Oh, yeah. I hope... I hope that's an applause for yourselves, because I didn't do nothing. Um, you know, I just want to give you an update on how me and Janae are doing. You know, so, when something like that happens, I don't want you to feel like, okay, let's not talk about it. Uh, we've had a really good couple of months. Uh, I'm glad to say that uh, despite what got us into this season, uh, I think Janae and I would both agree it's been one of the best two months runs of our life. We have felt so much healing and restoration, things that we probably should have addressed for a long time ago. Uh, again, dealt with. We've been in counseling together, which I strongly encourage anyone who's not done that, do it. It's really good for you. Uh, we've had wonderful pastors, Pastor Bruce come around us, Jeff's come around us, uh, but most especially, as I've said, you guys have come around us. The texts, the, the prayers, uh, the messages, I just want you to know they have meant a great deal to me, and it has opened my eyes to see tr truly how special this community is. And if you're new with us this morning, and you're thinking, what have I walked into this morning? What is this guy talking about? The reason why I'm talking about this is, one, so that you can know uh, this pastor is a sinner, and I need Jesus really badly. And that's why I preach, not to tell other people how to live their life, but because I need the love of Jesus and the grace of Jesus in my life. But second of all, I want you to know what community you've just walked into, because this is not a regular church. You've walked into a group of people who will love you at your worst, who will bear with you in the ugly moments of life, who will care for you, who will not turn you away. Uh, and so I hope you stick around long enough to be blessed by that and to be encouraged by that. 
But to, uh, to get back to what we're talking about this morning, let's ask the question, why? Why is our community like that? Why do we care about this stuff? Why do we want to be a people who love others at their worst and in the hard moments? Why do we want to be a place where we care for one another? I think it's because of what we're going to read in Romans 8 over the next few weeks. I think it's because we want to be a church that lives this out. We want to be a church that seeks after this because it is so good. You know, we've called this series The Greatest Chapter. I want to read to you what Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of my uh, favorite preachers, has said about this passage of Scripture. He says, Someone has said that in the whole of the Scriptures, the brightest and most lustrous and flashing stone or collection of stones is the epistle to the Romans. And that of these, Romans 8 is the brightest gem in the cluster. And that's because Romans 8, I think, is a passage that connects the what to the why and then the why to the how. It helps us understand what is this belief, this faith that we have as Christians, what effect is it meant to have in our lives? I think Romans 8 is an explanation of why Jesus Christ is good news for the whole earth. So we're going to dig in this, we're going to come, and I I really want to invite us as a church to remember what is the heart of our faith, what is the cornerstone of what we believe, and what informs everything else that we do in our Christian life, especially coming on the heels of Easter, We don't want to just look at the resurrection, behold it, and be excited about it, and then forget that it has changed everything, everything in our lives. So let's read this together. This is Romans 8, verses 1 through 4. This is what it says. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Let's pray really quickly before we dig into God's word. Father, I thank you for this chance to read your word. And I thank you that many commentators who have highlighted this chapter as being so beautiful, so important, uh, were right. There's a lot of chapters that are incredible, but here in Romans 8, we find something truly special. And God, I pray as we look at it this morning, Father, as we think about these words that Paul wrote, God, would you speak to us through them? Would you open our hearts to believe what you tell us here in these verses? I pray in Jesus' name, amen. First thing I want to talk about from this passage is a new verdict. A new verdict. You know, when I was uh, fresh out of college, I was looking for a job, trying to figure out what to do. I couldn't find anything, um, and my good friend who ran a farm said, well, why don't you come work for me? You can be our delivery guy. You can have our refrigerator truck and deliver our farm products to different businesses, different clients. Um, I'd never driven a refrigeration truck before, but it sounded cool, so I was in for that. I liked that. I'd gone in, and I was uh, having a great time for a couple of months, and then one day I had a really, really bad day. I was going through a neighborhood, uh, and... I grew up in a country where we don't have trees in our residential neighborhoods. It's just concrete jungle. Uh, But here in America, because you like the pretty neighborhoods, you put up these huge trees with these ugly-looking branches. Uh, And anyway, I'm cruising down this street. And if you don't know a refrigeration truck, it has the refrigeration unit right on the front above the cab. So I'm cruising. I'm having a good time. I'm listening to some Taylor Swift on the iPod. And then all of a sudden, I hear this huge bang. And I'm looking, I'm like, did I run over a raccoon or something? Am I good? Am I good? I couldn't figure it out. So I just keep going about my business. Yeah, I'm a moron. Um, So in about five minutes, I have to get out the truck because I'm delivering something. I get out, and as I'm walking by the truck, I look at the refrigeration unit. 
and it is completely smashed. Uh, there is refrigerant leaking down the front of the cab. It is a total disaster. And I realized that, that bang, I'd hit a tree. I'd hit one of the limbs on a tree. It was too low. Uh, and you know what filled me in that moment more than anything else is fear that I have just damaged a $10,000 van and there is no way I can fix this. I, I was thinking about what am I going to tell my friend who's been gracious enough to give me this job to help me out? What am I going to do about this? Because now I'm in big trouble. I'm in big trouble. You know, there is nothing so debilitating in the soul than the knowledge that you are going to have to face consequences for your failures. That you are going to have to face terrible consequences. And so there's no announcement more life-giving to us than hearing that there is no condemnation. It's so important. That's what Paul says, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Shocking statement. There's a lot of significant things that the Bible tells us, but this is one of the most shocking. Now, this is happening about halfway through a book, uh, an epistle to the Romans. It's in the letter that Paul sent to the church in Rome. So I want to give you a little bit of context of where this is coming from. Where did he reach this statement? Um, And Romans, just so you know, this is probably the Apostle Paul's opus. This is the greatest thing he has ever written in his life. He wrote it in about AD 57. He was on his third missionary journey around the area. And he was writing to a group of Christians in Rome that were very young, very new to the faith. And he wanted them to understand what it is that they had become a part of. Who it was that they trusted in and what he'd done for them. See, these these Roman Christians, they believed intellectually. They had kind of an agreement in what this idea of Christianity was about. But they needed help getting it from here into their heart. And isn't that just like us so often? Aren't we a people that we think about our faith and we we know what our faith says, but sometimes we don't sense its power in our hearts. Sometimes we come to church and we praise Jesus and we sing these songs, but deep down there's this question, we're longing, God, can this be real for me? Can this be true for me? Now in the first seven chapters of Romans, Paul gives us kind of a history of God in the world, which we could spend countless decades talking about. So we're going to try and summarize them Uh, as fast as we can. And really the easiest way to say this is that the first seven chapters, Paul is telling us that there is a very serious problem in creation, a problem of sin. And it's worth quickly mentioning here what Christians really think about this word sin because it's a word that gets used a lot, it gets heard a lot, but we don't always actually understand what really God is talking about when he talks about sin. The the Greek word for sin is a, a word hamartia. And what it means is to miss the mark. Think of kind of an archer that is fired an arrow at a target and it's missed. So sin really, in God's view, it's not simply things that he doesn't like or that he finds unpleasant. Sin is really to live in a way that is less than what God intended us for. Sin is to be missing out on the goodness and the beauty of what life is really supposed to be. This is how Tom Wright explains this. He says that there is something that we are supposed to be being and doing to image God in the world. And sin is the cheap alternative. And I think we all sense this problem. You know, in modern minds, we, we kind of find it a gross word. It's not a pleasant word. But I think we all know in our souls that it's a real problem. We can all agree that this world, we know intrinsically it's not the way that it's supposed to be. We know that when bad things happen, when cruel things happen, it's not the way it's supposed to be. 
And which of us would say that we've been able to live up to every expectation that we have for ourselves in our own lives, let alone the expectations that God has for us in creating us? Paul kind of culminates this story in Romans 1 through 7 in the end of chapter 7. This is what he says. He says, I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. And then he says this, wretched man that I am, all woman, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Well, Paul, when he says deliver there, what he means is, is to be snatched away from, to be rescued from. See, Paul senses the problem in his own soul. He knows things are not the way it is supposed to be, and most especially, I am not who I ought to be. I want to be good. I want to delight in the things that God has created and what he's made for me and what he's asked for me, but I know that my life keeps veering away from those things. I'm lost in it. I'm lost in this terrible battle. And he says, who is going to save me? Wretched man that I am. Who is going to fix this problem? Then he says the best words that you could ever hear. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is a solution. That's what Romans is talking about. And this is how he gets to Romans 8.1. He says, there is therefore now no condemnation. Now that is astounding. Considering the fact that we all know we have made mistakes, we have not lived up, to the true expectation of what human beings should be. We have missed the mark. The fact that the God who created all that looks at us and says, I'm gonna make a way for you to escape the consequences of your decisions. And I wanna mention here, because sometimes we think of this as this frightening thing of God's angry with us and so he has to get us out. I, I want you to hear that the Bible, when it talks about this rescue effort, it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. It was the motivation for God wanting to rescue us, for the, to give us no condemnation was love, because he loved us. And when God says that there's no condemnation, he's how truly astounding this is, because Paul isn't just saying there was a bad debt, God's wiped it out, and now it's up to you. Make sure you don't mess it up again. He's saying that the idea of condemnation has ceased to exist in the life of a Christian. It is now no longer possible to even be condemned again no matter what you do. Now, if you're thinking that sounds really ridiculous, yes, it does. That's why Paul, at one point in his letter, he kind of anticipates that people reading the story of Jesus, hearing the gospel would say, so does this mean we can just sin and there's no consequences? And he says, no. But the fact that he's recognizing that is saying, yes, I understand how this sounds. I understand how it sounds to you that God so loved you that he is going to help you escape the consequences, the condemnation. God is saying the verdict over your life is eternally changed once you've trusted in Jesus. You know what this means? This means if we went to heaven right now and we pulled the file on Andrew Griffiths and we start looking through all the details of my life, would we find anything in that file that says he's a terrible liar? He's really selfish. He's done some pretty bad things. He didn't take care of people. He, he wasn't always as serious as he should have been about loving other people. None of that exists in my file. You would have pulled my file in heaven. You know what it would say? This is my son. I love him. No condemnation. If you pull your file in heaven, if you're in Christ Jesus, you know what it says? Nothing about the things you've done wrong. Nothing about the ways in which you've missed the mark. Only that you are loved, that you are safe, you are secure. There is no condemnation and there never will be for you. And a Christian gospel that neglects to embrace this detail is crippled. You know why it's crippled? 
Because understanding that Jesus has so deeply forgiven you, so totally removed the condemnation from your life is essential if you want to grow in your faith. You have to know that's true. That's why John says in 1 John 3.20, whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. He knows everything. God knows you. He knows what you've done. And if you're in Christ, he says no condemnation. And you will only move past the struggles and the sins in your life to the extent that you know they have been forgiven. They have been paid for. Last thing I want to mention about this new verdict is that we don't want to miss that it says, where is it found? In Christ Jesus. In Jesus alone. Paul isn't saying that this is a blanket verdict for everyone who's ever lived. It's saying this is found in one place. You know, the gospel is radically inclusive because the invitation is open to everyone. But the doorway is very exclusive. It's only found in one place. If you want no condemnation, you can't run anywhere except to Jesus. Paul knows how shocking this is, and so he wants to explain where he's getting this from. Because if you're anything like me, you're hearing this and you say, this sounds good, but how could that be true? How could God really deal with things? Does he just sweep it under the carpet? And the answer is no. He's done something real to make this happen. He's given us a new grounding. You know, one of my favorite movies is a movie called Bean, the ultimate disaster movie. Anybody familiar with Mr. Bean? Okay, if you're not, dear America, you've got to fix your lives, man. Mr. Bean is unbelievable, right? So Mr. Bean is this ridiculous British character. He's an idiot. He always does everything wrong. And in the movie in particular, there's this piece of artwork, this priceless piece of artwork that he sneezes on, and so he tries to fix it. So he takes a handkerchief out of his pocket. It's got some ink, and he's rubbing it. It's making it worse. He eventually wheels it down the hall, tries to use some different chemicals to clean it off, and this is what you, you end up with, this disaster, Right? It's horrible. But you know why I like this movie? is because when I watch this movie, when I see him rushing through all this thing, it, I can kind of feel what it's like to try and deal with sin in my own life. It's like this picture, this beautiful picture that God has given me, and I keep messing it up. It keeps getting worse and worse. And no matter what I do, how hard I try, I can't get back what's been lost. You know, if we, if we kind of took this analogy, the only way to fix that painting is you need the original painter to come and remake the picture, Right? No one else can set that right except the one who made it. That's true about sin too. The only one who can fix sin is the one who originally made us. The one who knows what the purpose of life is. The one who knows the ends for which he created us. And so Paul says, For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh... And for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. So Paul wants to kind of explain what makes Jesus so different than everyone else. What makes Jesus the one person who can deal with this terrible problem? And he makes a really important point. He says, God has done something that the law could not do. That's what makes Jesus different, is he has done something that the law could not do. Now, this is all very confusing, right? What do we mean by law? What does he mean? Well, kind of in the history of God's story in the whole earth, God has always loved his people and he has always been working with us to redeem us. And as part of that story, he gave us something called the law, which kind of a summary way of thinking about this is the Ten Commandments. There was a lot more than that, but God gave a law to his people to help them understand how they should live. And it was perfect. 
Right? If we read through the Ten Commandments alone and we said, let's commit to these, let's do these, can you imagine the utopia we would live in if there was a world without jealousy, without cruelty, without lying? So the law is great, it was perfect, it was wonderful, but there was one problem. Me and you were not. We're not perfect. So no matter how much we strove and worked and sweated to try and fulfill the law of God, to be righteous, we couldn't do it. Augustine, one of my favorite historical church writers, said that the law proved itself weak because it did not accomplish what it commanded. But that wasn't the fault of the law. It was the fault of the flesh. That is, men did not love the righteousness of the law. You and me, the real problem is not outside of us. We tend to think it's out there somewhere. We've got to fix something that's out there and then I'll be okay. But the real problem is inside of us. It's not what we need to do. It's what we need to become. The way to think about this is uh, there's a famous swimmer, Pablo Fernandez, in 2021. He swam the longest distance in the open ocean that anyone had ever swam, about 250 kilometers or about 155 miles. And he swam all day to do that. And he had the added benefit of the Gulf Stream current to help him make the distance. Now, if we took the total distance he traveled and mapped it on a globe across the entire ocean, it would be minuscule. It would be infinitesimal. It would be meaningless. You know, the distance alone between the U.S. and the U.K. is thousands of kilometers. So the best swimmer in the world, the greatest athlete, the one who could do the most, still couldn't cross that ocean. Friends, God's righteousness is an ocean that is infinite. And you and I, the very best that we can do in our life will get us a meaningless amount of distance. We will not be able to cross it. And the more we strive and we more try to use the law, the law is kind of telling us you've got to swim this distance. This is the distance that you have to be able to cover, and we can't do it. So what we need is not something that simply tells us the distance, but something that can carry us across it. That's what we need. And so here comes Jesus to carry you across the ocean, and how does he do it? He does something that Martin Luther, the great reformer, called the Great Exchange. And this is why I'm going to get edgy. I'm going to ask for volunteers to help me out with this. For those of you that are falling asleep, this is going to wake you up. Okay, so... Pastor Bruce, I've preloaded, and Dr. Lee, can you come and help me? Sure. There we go, okay. So come on up, come on up, okay. Dr. Lee, who's a wonderful man, you're going to be playing the role of Jesus in this, I know. <laughs> it's a lot of pressure. Bruce, you're going to be humanity, okay? So humanity has this receipt, this very realistic looking receipt right here. It says, you owe righteousness, okay? I should have really got a CVS receipt that was like two miles long. That would have been accurate. So you're going to hold that, Okay. So Bruce, Bruce is experiencing the problem that all, me and you all have. We owe God righteousness. But you know what? His bank account is empty. There's nothing in there. The debt is compounding and compounding and compounding. But let's go over to Jesus, right? Who, who Paul tells us came in the likeness of men. He's saying the likeness of men, well, humanity, go back over here. <laughs> you cannot approach the Lord Jesus. Okay? Jesus over here is born in the likeness of men, which means that he was born into our lives, into our world, but he's not exactly like us, is he? Because Jesus is the perfect son of God. Jesus was sinless, meaning he was perfect in his righteousness. So Jesus has this righteousness credit card. This is really mine, but uh, unfortunately, my credit card does not have righteousness. So I want you to hold this because he has perfect righteousness. When the law examines Jesus, when the law comes and says, have you committed adultery? Have you lied? Have you committed any sin at all? It cannot find anything on Jesus. 
The law examines and examines and examines, and it finds Jesus completely perfect in his righteousness. So Jesus in his love does something spectacular. Okay, Jesus, I want you to come to humanity. And what Jesus does is he does a great exchange. Look at this. It's so it's like Jesus. <laughs> Give him a hug. There you go. Biblical. But here's what he does is, Jesus, you take this debt, and you exchange it for your credit. So now what's happened is Jesus has took upon himself the weight of the debt and he's given the credit of his own righteousness, his own perfect life, his total fulfillment of the law, he's given to us. So if we are in him, if we are found in Christ Jesus, there is no debt because that debt is completely destroyed by Jesus. Look at that, textbook. (laughs) Jesus has wiped it out, right? An exchange has happened. So if you're in Christ, there is no debt to be paid. It's not lingering out somewhere in the ether. It's gone. It's deleted. And what's more, you now carry within you because of the Spirit of God, the righteousness of Christ. And you know what's great about this? This is not his bank account. So he's not putting anything into it. It is a bank account that belongs to Jesus. So for the rest of his life, humanity over here is going to wave, look at the righteousness of Christ. Look what I've been given. This isn't mine. It doesn't belong to me. I didn't make it. I didn't fill this account. This comes because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But he is going to live without that death. He'll never have to look at it. He'll never have to see it. He'll never have to talk about it ever again. Okay, you guys are perfect. You can take a seat. But you can't take my money. Okay. I wanted you to see that. I wanted to use people because so often we talk about Jesus paying our debt. We think about that. But we think really that debt is still sticking to us. We stand there and we believe, really, this hasn't disappeared. And what's more is you don't understand that you've been given that credit, that you've been given the righteousness of Christ. And this is why Paul says in Romans, he says in Romans 3, for now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Because although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus, um, although the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Jesus is God's final and perfect solution to the problem of sin because he does what the law could not do. He doesn't just examine you, he gives you the credit of his own life. Do you know what this means? This means exactly what Paul says. He says, you have been set free from the law of sin and death. You can finally rest You don't need to justify yourself. You don't need to end God's love. You don't need to work it off. You are free. There is peace in your soul. Do you know that without Jesus, without his grounding, that new grounding, you will work and you will work and you will work, constantly having a question mark over your life. Am I good enough? Have I loved enough? Have I served enough? Have I been enough? Jesus, you don't need to think about those questions. They're gone. If you were in Christ Jesus, you are loved because of his offering for your life. And some of you are so exhausted in your spiritual life because you are still living the crippled gospel of condemnation is out there somewhere. That's not good news and that's not the gospel. Last thing I want to mention really quickly is a new life. Paul finishes this first section of Romans 8. He says, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. God's work in Christ was ultimately to bring about transformation in us, not just clear a debt, but to change us, to bring us new life. 
And that new life consists of three things. First of all, a new motivation. New motivation. Now we obey God and we love our neighbor, not because we have to, but because we get to. I'll put it another way. We are not loving so that God will love us. We are loving because God has loved us. That will radically change what motivates you to love your neighbor. If you understand that everything you need has already been given to you, if your account is full, if your justification is settled, then you could love other people freely for the first time in your life. Second thing is that he gives us a new power. We were talking about this sermon with Pastor Brian this week, and he was telling us that one of his sons has uh, a Tesla. I was very jealous. Uh, and he says that this Tesla is fantastic, it's a beautiful car, incredibly fast, but you have to charge it regularly. Because if you don't charge it, it dies very, very quickly. You know that the Christian life is a little bit like that Tesla? We have got to plug ourselves into the truth of the gospel. We've got to get Romans 8 imprinted on our heart and let it fill us. Otherwise, we're going to run dry. Otherwise, our life is going to run dry real quick. I have suffered from not plugging myself into the gospel regularly. I've suffered from making, not making sure that I'm involved in some kind of life of the church in one way, whether that's a small group or a life group, whether that's praying regularly with my brothers and sisters in Christ, whether that's getting mentorship or counseling, whether that's simply just waking up in the morning and saying, I'm going to commit to being with my father this morning. I'm going to pray with him. I'm going to talk with him. I'm going to let him speak into my heart. And when we become Christians that kind of check in and out of church maybe once or twice a month, and that's all it is, never visits us Monday through Saturday, we start to run dry. And we slide away from no condemnation back into the law of sin and death. And we start thinking, that's what I'm really defined by. I'm defined by, am I doing enough? Okay, now I'm going to have to go do some more, and some more, and some more. And we fall back into guilt and shame, and it crushes us. And friends, the heart of God breaks for us because he wants to say, there is now no condemnation for you. You don't need to go back to the law of sin and death. How different would our lives be if we plugged into this? And lastly, the new life has a new purpose. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 and 18, and then verse 21. This is what it says. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And then one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture, memorize it because it's so good. For God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You know what it means to be the righteousness of God? It means that your life has been changed. It's been given new purpose. And the ministry of reconciliation that Paul talks about is connected to what it means to be the righteousness of God. To be righteous in God means that we are now sharing that. We are giving that to others. The law is fulfilled in us when we love and share with others what God has done in us. We extend grace because we are not condemned. And this, this might be the most important part of this for us today. Because we live in a culture that loves to condemn, that looks for reasons to bring up people's records. And if we have truly known that there is no condemnation for us, we must extend no condemnation to those that we want to come in to the body of Christ. Because if the first perception that people have of God's people is that's a condemning group of people, they will never come in to find the no condemnation that exists in Jesus. When Jesus was gracious with prostitutes and tax collectors, it wasn't because he didn't 
have serious opinions about their sin. It's because he wanted to deal with that, and so he needed to invite them into the grace of his love so that they would let go of it, so that they would come to him and rest in him and give it up. If we want people to repent and to know the joy of the gospel, it is kindness and grace that draws people into that reality. You know, the reason we often struggle, even here in the church, to confess our sin, and I'll be the first to admit this, knowing that very recently I've gone through this, it's because I didn't really believe that there was no condemnation. I hid and I buried, and we hide and we bury, we run away, and we, because it's so foreign that when God says, I'm going to erase that, we, we have no grid for it. It doesn't exist anywhere else. We can't say, well, yeah, that's just like this guy or this guy. Christians should be the most grace-filled people because we have not been condemned. And if today, I want to close by doing this, if today you still worry about whether you're condemned, let me give you a quick highlight of the stories of the people in this book so we can understand what no condemnation really means. Abraham, one of the greatest men in our faith, did not trust God. He lied about his wife's identity to save his own skin and sold her off to a king who would sleep with her. And then he tried to cheat his way into God's plan by sleeping with a woman who was not his wife. And then, when his own wife got upset about that, he sent that poor woman out in the wilderness to live by herself with that child. But God loved that man. And God gave him his righteousness. Moses killed a man and was prone to fits of anger and insecurity. Samson indulged himself in his own impulses at the expense of those that he was called to protect. David ignored his responsibilities and then pressured another man's wife into sleeping with him and when others people started to find out had her husband killed to cover up his sin. Elijah, one of the greatest prophets in all of Israel's history, began to doubt his faith and abandoned his position as a prophet because of fear and depression. Peter, the rock, was quick-tempered, impulsive and thought more highly of himself than he ought and it led him to betraying and abandoning his best friend in his greatest hour of need. Paul was a professional Christian hunter, actively approving of them being brought before crowds to be stoned in the streets and brutally murdered. The guy who wrote this letter. And Andrew Griffiths did not live up to what the law required of him. But God so loved Andrew that he sent his only son. In this is love, not that I have loved Jesus, but that he has loved me and given himself as an offering for my sin. Friends, there is now, nor will there ever be, condemnation for you if you are in Christ Jesus. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this great news, this beautiful news that there is now no condemnation. And we can't find that anywhere but you. So this morning, Lord, we sing, we pray, we read, and we rejoice because you have done what the law could not do. Thank you, God, for giving us the credit of your righteousness, for freeing us from the rat race and the spiritual treadmill, setting us free to love our neighbor as ourself, to lay ourselves down and to extend grace and mercy 
in people's hour of need. Father, do that work in us again this morning. Transform us that your righteousness might be seen in this world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.